insurance agents from around the world. Welcome to the Insurance Guys podcast, powered by Glovebox. God, I love Glovebox. My name is Scott Howell, your fearless host and leader, insurance agency owner and insurance evangelist for iProtect Insurance and Financial Services, based out of Huntsville, Alabama. And before we get started on today's episode, please help me welcome, he is a six foot three sophomore from Mobile, Alabama, parade first team All-American, rivals five-star recruit. He is a fantastic insurance agent and a great American. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome my friend, Mr. Bradley Flowers. How are you, Bradley? Best I've ever been. Best I've ever been. Guys, I've never been more excited about a podcast than I am today. This is a very special moment in time, and I cannot wait. I, I, I'm just like uh, I'm like an inside linebacker that just is waiting on that running back to run through the hole right now. I am ready to go. Our podcast guest today is somebody that I guess Bradley, what for the last six months or so, we've been talking about coming on yep. to the insurance guy. Yep. And, and guys, you know how things happen like something would happen on our end or something would happen on his end. But we are so excited to have him on the show today. But in addition to that, I have with me today one of my favorite people in the entire world of the United States of America. And, uh, you know, anytime I get to spend time with him is a special time for me. And we don't get to talk very much because that's just life, man. You got people in your life that you love and you care about and you want to talk to, but unfortunately we're all busy. And as an insurance agent an agency owner, uh, everybody listening to this podcast in the sound of my voice right now can certainly identify with that because most of us on here are head cooks and bottle washers. And we're dealing with our wife's, uh, rental car during lunch and, we got 400 <laughs> people asking us questions and 13 people wanting us to do something for them. And our kids are all screwing up. So we got to try to take care of that. I, and, I would rather carry you back to Huntsville mm, on my back mm, than deal with a rental car company that uh, I'm having to deal with. right. You now. know, I think most people probably heard my story on the podcast about four weeks ago, relative to the, the fact that I now believe pharmacies have turned into the new DMV. And if you remember back to that episode, I'm sitting there waiting on my medication and the guy walks up to the pharmacist and he says, Hey, Susan, if you'll cut your toenails, I'll buy the clippings. That's a true story. That really happened a couple of weeks ago. Bradley, I cannot tell you the level of pissed off I was when I had to drive 12 hours back from the one city world tour in that rental car. And I am trying to do the right thing to do the right thing and call the rental car company to tell them I have just stolen your rental car out of Texas. Okay. Let's just, yep. let's just go ahead and call well, it what it was. Spade. spade a spade. And I am driving that rental car back to Pine Ridge, Alabama, population 79. And that you would have thought that I had just uh, invaded the Capitol on January the 6th. I yeah. mean, these people are treating me like a second hat class citizen. And I said, you know what I should have done? You sons of bitches. I should have gotten on that damn Delta flight and given about 800 freaking people COVID-19. That's yeah. what I should have done. Mm -hmm. That's what it's like dealing with a damn rental car. There. It's just terrible. It's awful. Unbelievable. Dealing with a rental car company is about like what direct to consumer insurance companies think it's like dealing with an independent agent. <laughs> Which is probably what it's actually like. Well, no, I'll tell you what dealing with a rental car company is like. 
it's exactly like dealing direct insurance for a consumer when you right. when you have a claim. Correct. Yeah. You have a claim. Yeah, exactly. When you've talked to the 14th person at Allstate to have to tell the same story to. That's yeah. exactly what it's like. Exactly. Yeah. Guys, I want to bring our guest on today, but before I do, I've got another podcast co-host and one of my favorite people in the world to bring on the show. For those of you that don't know him, I call him uh, lovingly top five because he's one of the top five people I've ever met in my life. And I'm not going to give him the usual introduction because obviously he doesn't even need that at this point in time. He's been on the show so many times. He is the chief sales officer at JAG Insurance, powered by Hub International. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you top five, Mr. Lewis Gazatua. How are you, Lewis? Doing well, Scott. Appreciate as always the intro, Bradley. This is uh this is always fun. I'm excited for this one. Absolutely. Um, but always catching up. This is pretty cool. I'm I'm gonna I'm just happy to be here, to be honest with you. I'm well, this here. is a this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And I, I don't want to make it too, too uh, you know too much of a big deal, but it is a big deal because uh we all have lots of questions for the guy that I'm about to give an introduction here. Lewis, you want to catch us up on what's going on real fast before I bring him on with what's going on down at, at, at JAG Insurance right now? Sure. So, you know, it kind of interesting. It's been 10 and a half months into our new journey, into our, our new insurance career where, where we sold to Hub International. It's been, and I don't want to, I can, I'm, I can have my own show basically on, on, on how, how our lives have changed and what I call it JAG 2.0 has turned into. Uh, but it's been, it's been a great transition, you know, uh, everything I thought what would happen, it's it's actually been a lot better. I can't can't complain. Curious and and actually, you know, our our guest that's joining us as well, big part of, of why we joined. He's he changed changed my life, my two partners' lives, and actually a lot of our employees' lives. Just things have things have escalated to another level, and it's it's been it's been all good. It's been all good. I feel like I tell people I'm in the matrix now. I, I took the blue pill. There so, you go. I, and, and by the way, that's something I wanted to talk about today. And we're going to get into that in just a minute. Please allow me to give this man the introduction that he deserves. Ladies and gentlemen, he's from originally from Leamington, Ontario, Canada, and he currently resides in Jupiter, Florida. He is married to the beautiful Allie, and they have three beautiful kids, all grown, of course. Natalie, 38 years old, Ben, 36, and Paige, 22. Now I want to speak to them for just a minute. Natalie, Ben, and Paige, your father has done so much in his life and has such a resume of success. You should be, if you're not, you should be extremely, extremely proud of what he's accomplished in his life. And I know you are proud of him. And uh, when you hear this podcast, I hope, my hope is that you'll go up and give him a big hug and tell him how much you love him because uh, what he has done is truly amazing in his career. And I, I'm deeply looking forward to talking about that today. His father had a small agency in a town of 1,200 people in Canada, and he needed a job. So his dad sponsored him, and he trained at Allstate Canada for one month and then opened up his own little office on January the, on, in January of 1977. He eventually bought his father's interest out and purchased several small agencies and then merged with a larger firm and formed the Hub Group. Subsequent to that, he partnered with a large financial partner, Fairfax Financial, and launched what is today 
Hub International. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my profound honor to introduce to you on the Insurance Guys podcast, the original CEO and founder of Hub International, Mr. Rick Gulliver. How are you, Rick? Great. Wow, what an intro. I was impressed. <laughs> My wife would never agree with any of that. Uh, I'm sure she would. <laughs> say, she it'll go to his head. It'll go to his head. But yes, that was well, well done. That's very true. I'm, I'm great. We, we, have a, we have a line of Insurance Guys podcast alarm clocks coming out. If you would like that to play for you every, every morning, morning when you wake, you wake up. up. Yeah, that's right. Right. Hey, hey Rick, great. we've got a lot to talk about today. I have really enjoyed getting to know you and getting to spend a little bit of time with you over the phone. Uh, like I said earlier, everybody's schedules are busy, but every time you and I speak, I feel like I learn something from our conversation. Tell us, I'll tell you what I want to do if it's okay with you. Sure. I'd like for you to climb in my DeLorean for just a moment and go back in time. I know I, I gave just a brief description of, of how you got into the, you know, the insurance industry and the business, but tell our listening audience today, go back in time for us and just talk a little bit about more about that transition and how you got into the insurance industry and then how you were able to form what is now one of the largest insurance agencies in the world, if not the largest with Hub International. Well, uh, yeah, we don't have enough time on this podcast. <laughs> I'll give you some, I'll give you some of the Reader's Digest version of it. So yeah, I did. I grew up in a small town, actually. Well, it was a city compared to Pine Ridge. Right. But um my father had a little farm agency selling home and auto and farm insurance. And I did two years of pre-med, tried to get into dental college and failed the chalk carving. And next thing you know, you know, Jed's a broken millionaire. Right. So I had to uh, do something. So that's when I trained at Allstate and opened my own office. I knew that my father and I could not work together. <laughs> he was a crusty old dude. And, uh, you know, I was gung ho to show the world what I could do. And I grew up playing hockey like most Canadians. So when I got in the business, I went after uh, people I knew from being on the ice, people I knew in the community knocked on their doors and all state trained us. Uh, so all state actually was really good training. They trained us to never accept a no keep knocking and just keep knocking. And it was, it's sort of like a life insurance sales 101. So I opened my office and I like to tell the story how it was used to be uh, a chicken takeout place. So it smelled like fried chicken in there, which was, was never good when you came in after a night of hockey and drinking beer, because the last thing you need is fried chicken <laughs> uh, with a hangover. But uh, I had a field rep come in and see me. I opened January 77. A field rep came in to see me in April 77, and I think he was sent by the competition. Uh, the competition said, go find out who this one-man shop is down there. And I'd been doing some BORs and sending back renewals, et cetera. And uh, he asked me what my uh, pipeline looked like and what were my closing rate and what was my average premium per policy and, and data. And I was I, – I was – a biochem major, I had no idea what the questions were about. So I just kept saying, it's none of your business. Mm -hmm. And when he left, I called my brother who has his MBA and said, Hey, Rennie, what's a business plan? What's a cash flow? Mm -hmm. So that was when I realized I need to write $5,000 of premium a month just to pay the rent. 
So that's what kind of uh, idiot I was. I opened my own office to sell insurance, didn't even know how much premium I had to sell to pay the rent. So over time, as I got out writing more and more accounts and exceeding $5,000 in premium, because back in the days, as you guys remember, and a lot of people still do, we talked premium, we didn't talk commission. Over the years, I ended up hiring guys that I played hockey with that didn't make it to the NHL like me, and they had personality, and I knew they'd go in the corner for a puck. So I started bringing them in as producers, paying them 50% commission, which was too much, but you know I didn't know any better. And uh, just started building the agency. And I got a phone call from an insurance company saying, will you take over an agency in another town that had uh, some trust problems? And of course, I said, sure. I didn't know what I was getting into. So I took over another agency. And then I got a call from another agent I met at the agency meeting, the local broker and agents association meeting. And he wanted to meet with me and see if I was interested in buying his agency. So... At the time that I got into the game, my timing was good in the fact that I was one of the younger guys in the industry, and there were a lot of senior people in the industry that had no succession strategy or mm. at all. So I started to do deals with people on vendor takebacks where they held the note and held the paper, and I started buying offices. And you know, I worked 24 hours a day. And I'm, as I met people, I'd ask them if they were interested in getting in the business. It was never about profit. It was always about just growing revenue or premium and selling. We're going to be a great sales organization. So that was Southwestern Ontario. And eventually, uh, I ended up getting to the point where I knew I needed a financial partner because my dad was my partner and my dad was pretty nervous about the balance sheet and how things, if things were going to collapse. So I met a firm out of Toronto called Trivest and they were backed by the Bronfmans, which are the guys who made liquor in Canada. So they, they did well. So they, they own London life and Royal trust and Royal page and a lot of financial institutions. And they were interested in buying into brokers So myself and 19 other brokers across Canada partnered with them. And that was when I met other brokers across the country. And that was where I really started to formulate the idea that small agencies, if they aligned and if they had the right financial backing, could start to develop things that we just were never capable of. Sure. In our competition against Johnson and Higgins and Sedgwick and Marsh and Aon and and uh, Willis, uh, the bigger players, we just never had the wherewithal to put together the risk management services. And we didn't have the name and the brand and a lot of larger accounts would focus on, well, we're just gonna go with the safest name and we're gonna go with Aon or we're gonna go with Marsh. And uh, the objective of, bringing brokers together was collectively we could form some sort of clout with the markets and also start to change the characteristics of the landscape that independent agents, independent brokers had as much capability and strength as the large broker. And that was the seed that sort of got the whole thinking of, of hub going in the early days was, you know, just the, same thing that you guys face today at your firms, Bradley and Scott, is uh, 
Sometimes you know that you can do a better job than the competition, but you just don't have the swab because you know you're a, you're a smaller operator. Well, so, so the ethos behind building the big firm was not simply just to build a big firm. It was to give you more buying power in the marketplace correct. as a figure of speech. Number one priority was winning accounts. We were always a sales organization and uh, we would get our juices flowing when we had an opportunity to write a large account. Uh, and, uh, we, you know, we'd work our tails off and, uh, you know, it was, we sort we learned as we went. And I think the, the lucky thing with smaller brokers is, you meet underwriters along the way that will help help you. And you learn a lot from underwriters. You learn a lot from the markets, the relationships you have with markets. So that, that gave us a lot of insight as well. Hey, Rick, I want to stop right there for just a second because I haven't told Bradley this story. I've talked a little bit about this with Lewis, but the very first conversation you and I had with each other back six or seven months ago we touched on this topic and I remember you saying to me, Scott, the place that you're at right now with your agency, you're reaching that point to where in order for you to get to that next level, to level up, you're going to probably have to partner with somebody to, to get, and, and this is something that Lewis and I have talked about, uh, not, not a ton, but enough of being able to you know, you, you do reach this uh, plateau at about 10, $15 million in premium where it feels like the only way to kind of get to that next level in your career is going to be some type of partnership that gives you the resources to go out and compete with uh, air quotes here, the big boys. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yes. What I, you know, when I was building the agency, I was fortunate enough to run into some very um, well-experienced, successful people in the industry. But the meeting was not in person. There was, there's a gentleman in the U.S., George Nordhaus. Some people know George Nordhaus. He's been around forever. But he had a company called Insurance Marketing and Management Services out of California. And George used to do a quarterly tape interviewing successful agency operators mm -hmm. from around the country. And I would listen to those tapes religiously and they would talk about how they managed producers and CSRs and wrote new business. And, and from all those tapes, I learned a ton. And then I went to a conference and I met guys like John Jakes, who was a consultant back then, et cetera. But through these meetings, I realized that if I was going to continue to build my agency one producer at a time, and they don't all make it, obviously, right. some do, some turn a rock star, some don't, but you end up getting trapped in this management position between CSRs and a min and accounting, and then computers come along and you got you got tech, you got to deal with, et cetera. You can't break out. And I remember listening to George or one of the guys he interviewed say, you know, there's different stages of a brokerage or an agency's life. You know, there's like the go-go stage, which is when you're out writing new business and go crazy like Jag was. And they grew and they grew and they grew. And then everybody's a little bit stretched because you can't let go of those relationships you have. You still mm -hmm. want to look after them. It's a people business. You feel you just feel an obligation to look after them. 
and you can't sort of break out of that tar or jelly and you need to break out of that. So you, if you're going to go, whatever it is, 5 million in revenue, 2 million revenue, 10 million premium to go to that next level, you probably have to either reorganize your firm and start to move files away into service centers or do whatever you got to do, which customers don't like and employees don't like. I mean, those are tough deals. Or you have to make a shift in the paradigm of the operation. Mm. I'm not saying that you need to partner with someone, but when you do partner with the right firm, if you do partner with the right firm, that's your paradigm opportunity. That's when you can say we're 10 million. Now we're going to be part of something that's 50 million or whatever, but we're going to be taking us, our team here together to 25, 30, 40 million. We're going to go to the next level in our community, our target area. And we're going to do it because of our alignment with this, this entity. So it is an opportunity to shed off things that people have a hard time shedding off when they're building a company. Lewis, I want you to speak to this as well, because you and I've had some conversations about the difference between walking into a board meeting or a risk management review as JAG insurance versus JAG insurance powered by Hub International. Yeah, that, that it's, and what Rick, I mentioned, uh, talk about the shift. It's, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, I've learned now 11 months into this, this transition at Hub International, a kind of the running joke when, when you, when we're going after larger accounts, you know, the joke is decision makers never get fired for hiring a top five firm. It's just, right. it is what it is, right? It's kind of one of those things. And, and that, and that was kind of, you know, a running joke. And it's an interesting because being independent before, you know, I was the, you know, I was very vocal about how to sell against the big, the alphabet shops, we used to call them, right? We, well, we I remember us, I remember us talking about it. <laughs> you remember, right? That, yeah. that, that's what we talk about. What are the strategies? It's relationships. It's relationships. Um, but, but back to the, the, the shift that, that Rick was talking about, I think the biggest challenge, and to be direct, and my biggest challenge even now as we're transitioning is you build your business, when, and all of us are producers, and we start our agency, and we start, I mean, we're on the go, go, go mode, what Rick had mentioned, and man, we are hands-on. We are going to every meeting. We're doing house visits. I remember going to sort of personal lines policy, right? You visit a house. This is about growing the business. So you kind of, the, the, the challenge that I know I had, I still have now, it's I've built so many great relationships. And then, but it gets to a point where I, I don't have the bandwidth to almost maintain those same relationships. So it's like, how do I, it's, it's like having to set those expectations of, hey, we have a team and we're building because so many of us want to start our agency and we want to grow, but the truth is we're the producers, we're the agency owners, there's only one of us or two of us, maybe three of us in my situation. So it's kind of one of those things where you get to a point and, and, and the shift has changed. And I joke about the matrix kind of, you know, whatever mantra that I mentioned before, but it's, I know what's changed at least in, in kind of our life and what's happening and, and how we're so excited is now our sales cycle is just fast forward. You know, some of the, some of our largest account might've taken two to three years for us to kind of do, you know, because we all have the resume play, right? It's about us. It's us. It's about us. But now it's more of, you know, we're, we're part of, of hub, you know, we're checking a box, we're in the doors and now we're able to kind of show our personalities and our knowledge. And it's not just so much about a resume play, but it's about what we can do. So it's, it's been, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tangible thing that we're experiencing. Right. So 
One thing that you said a couple of times to me that I mentioned yesterday, or excuse me, last weekend, I think in a podcast, was there's different levels to this thing. So we so we all start out scratch, and we all do the same thing Rick did when he started. You're, you're you know you're slinging business cards. You'll write anything. You you go to your friends. You go to your family. You're hiring your buddies. Whatever whatever it is. But you you start out at that level. And then you grow to that five to $10 million level. And it's, it's a little different. Now you've got employees. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're a little more disconnected than you were when you started, but I know for you, Lewis, it feels like you've reached that next level or maybe the two levels above that. Talk a little bit about that. I, I, I it intrigues me. Well, I mean, we, we realized, we didn't talk about it, right. But we realized about 18 months ago, you know, we were growing and we're, we're doing well, but we were kind of in that plateau. I, I almost compared it to a treadmill where we were, our organic growth kind of stopped because we were so focused on servicing accounts. You can't lose accounts. And we were, we were looking to invest in people, but we knew we, we, you know, we, we, you know, Doug Fur and I would talk all the time. It was either who's going to be our next partner, whether we were going to get a loan and go out and find other people. Like we kind of got to that point or do we pick a partner? It, it was just something that was lingering. Um, now, mind you, when, when this happened and, and I give, you know, Rick a lot of credit because, um, you know, back to the point, Rick, Rick's a big reason why we joined with hub. It's just my, my, and, and I don't want, you know, I know we just to kind of be clear that the conversation of selling your agency or partnering up, is a very scary thing. You know, what sure. corporate America looks like. I know all of us, I mean, done it. And by the way, just locally, I, I talked to other agency principals and they were always saying, never sell. Mind you, I was talking to producers, not agency principals, but there was always kind of this, this, this connotation of like, when you sell, you're retiring. But um, when we had these conversations and kind of a revolution, what we looked at is putting gas on the fire. Mm. Like we're, we're, we're kind of just, it's, again, I, I know everyone says, oh, Lewis, you're in the honeymoon phase, whatever, how long does the honeymoon last? I mean, 10 and a half months, 11 months, but it's it's been an interesting kind of dynamic and, and a fast forwarding of what my career looks like and how I look at accounts, how, how, how I'm approaching accounts, how I'm selling insurance. Um, even now going from, we all go from this journalist, like we're all journalists, right? Early on, then you start kind of going up market a little bit. And I start realizing expertise and actually product knowledge is, is the biggest differentiator, regardless of what you work for, like right. kind of focusing on being a specialist. So I've, I've kind of gone through this, like, fast forwarding, shifting every day. If anything, my biggest issue is, is I'm actually a little bit overwhelmed in the opportunities now where like I went from trying to map out my LinkedIn contacts, who I'm going to call, where now anybody, anywhere, anytime is an opportunity where, where I honestly, I, it's almost a paralysis because right. I'm going to call six people and I call none. So that's kind of the, the, the pool that, that we jumped into. And it's, uh, it's something I'm thankful we did. So Rick, how many agencies today collectively make up Hub International? Mm, I don't know, to be honest yeah. with you. Uh, here's what I can tell you. Just for a perspective for your listeners. When, so I started from scratch and our agency, the Gulliver Group, it was called originally. Sure. We were 3.8 million commissions. We did home and auto, farm insurance, small business, a uh, little bit of benefits. It's in Canada, so benefits isn't, wasn't big up there. But so I was 3.8 million. I merged with a firm that was 
six million in Toronto, Montreal. So we became 10 and then another firm joined us, made us 13. So we're 13 million. So those three firms coming together was a situation where I was driven to see if there was an opportunity in my career in the insurance business to leave a mark. Because when when we were 3.8 million and merged with other firm, it was six, I was 40 years old. Mm-hmm. So I was at that point where I was like, okay, I'm 40. Do I keep doing this till I'm 65 and servicing home and auto and small business and farm and whatever and managing producers and da 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 and grow, grow it to 5 million. Uh, and then I retire and play golf and sit on my 19 foot sea red, smoke cigars and drink. And I went, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good plan. Sounds, sure. sounds all right to me. Sure. But, <laughs> But I just had a fire going and I was so frustrated with the industry that there was so many things that I thought the industry just doesn't address them well. There's so much paper. Endorsements take forever. You can't get underwriting decisions. Things like it drove me crazy. You mean the stuff so, we still we, we're still frustrated with? Oh, yeah. Stuff still yeah, frustrated. Right. So we did the deal, went out, and that was how Hub got launched back in early, late 98, early 99. Since then, Hub has acquired about 700 insurance brokers, Canada, US. I probably met with a thousand. So I lived on the road from late, well, mid 98 when we started the company, partnered with Fairfax Financial until about two years ago. I lived on the road. I flew commercials. So, you know, there were places you can't get to from here places. And so I went into agencies that were a million dollars in revenue to agencies that were $50 million in revenue mm-hmm. and told the story. And what, what I learned over the years is, you know, there's different types of people in the industry, obviously, but you have listeners that are sitting there saying, look, I got $3 million in premium. I'm the man or the lady around town. Life's good. Why don't I want to do a deal with anybody? I'm just going to keep, we've been doing this for years. I'm going to keep chugging along. I got good markets, blah, blah, blah. Great. Do it. That's cool. Carry on. When the year day comes that you want to perpetuate your firm or get, you know, crystallize your value, you can do an internal deal. You can get a banker to do it, or you could do it internally, or you could just sell it to one of the big players. Right. And then there's people that are like, I got a partner here that's driving me crazy and I don't know how to approach him or her and get him out of here. And they're holding the firm back and blah, 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 blah. And those kind of firms that would drive me nuts. That's like having a problem child that nobody's dealing with. You know, you need to deal with those things. So I see firms like that too. And whether you do a deal with hub, wherever you do with, that's an opportunity for you to face that, get that monkey off your back and say, let's do a deal and change things. So you got those firms that'll never go along because they got emotion involved. They're not running a business. And then you have firms that are like Jag that say, hey, we want to grow and we want to do this and we want to do this, but we don't, we don't want to be told what to do. Like we're, we're not, we don't want to sell out. We don't want to be come into work and not be excited every day. Like right now we control our destiny. Right. And I've, I've met with all kinds and different hybrids of those. And I always just explain that here's the options you have in the world, whether you choose however you choose, whoever you choose. 
Get to know what your options are. Spend time with the key people in your firm that are involved in the longer term career of the firm and really have a heart to heart and talk about, do we want to consider these things? Because we can always say no. And once you go through that process, it's really healthy for everybody in the firm because you might step back and say, we're not doing anything right now, but we are going to change this, this, and this. Let's take a new run at it and let's take this firm forward this way. So, or they may say, let's shelf it for two years and then revisit it. And, but they have a process. They've been in a discussion and they're facing those, those challenges. It's like personal counseling for the firm almost. So I've seen a lot of them. And I tell you, I've seen some that I hate doing deals to do deals. Any deal that we did was it was good for them and it was good for us. And we all felt that we could get together at Thanksgiving and have Thanksgiving dinner and not even talk business and have fun. You know, we end up hugging each other because it's, there's a personal connection. You have, you know, similarities in life. You just feel comfortable with them and you gain trust, their trust, your trust, and, and, and it works. And if that magic isn't there or the sparks of that magic isn't there, I say to people, don't do a deal. Don't do a deal with them or don't do a deal with us. Do, do it so it's good for you. And uh, if it's good for you, it'll be good, good for them. So I went on and on, but I wanted to get that out for your listeners because I think that that's important stuff. No, it's, it's very inspiring. So you were three million in revenue when you did your first merger. Yeah. And and from the time that you started the agency to that three million in revenue, what 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 kind of time period was that? So I launched January 77 and I did the deal in 96. So that took me almost 20 years to get to 3.8. Yeah. And, so, and then, and, you, you know, I, the other reason I laugh is because we firms join us that are a million or 2 million of revenue. And they, you know, people say, Oh, why are you buying such a little firm? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you know how hard the people work to get to 1 million or 2 million or 3 million in revenue? Right. I mean, right. in my case, it was 20 years of work to get to 3.8 million of revenue. I mean, that's that was a big agency in my mind. So from you said 96, 77 to 96. Yeah. 96. So from 96 to when you formed Hub International and started really acquiring agencies, how, how what, what amount of time was that? Well, 96 is when we formed the Hub Group, when gotcha. Brian Jeffrey, gotcha. Knox Vickers, McLean, 6 million and the Gulliver Group merged. We, we engaged a branding company because the plan was Brian and I said, let's put our firms together. Let's raise money and let's go and buy agencies. Now, you got to remember back in 98, it was pre Y2K, but Y2K was on the horizon. Right. And technology was starting to become a thing because the banks had a lot of technology and insurance brokers really had none. We had applied and that was like it. So, I said to Brian, if we're going to do something, we do it now. We go out and get some capital and we take a launch at building a bigger brokerage and investing in whatever technology we need to compete with the banks because the banks are going to get in our business and they're going to take our clients. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the strategy. So in that process, so that was in 96, Brian and I merged. Prem Watts had called me in July of 98, chairman and CEO of Fairfax Financial who bought they owned, uh, who'd they buy in Canada? They bought Continental. I mean, you guys may not remember, but Continental Insurance, a big U.S. company. They bought them. 
and they bought several other insurance companies. So Prem called me to have lunch. I had lunch with them at the Toronto Club July of 98. During lunch, I was pretty pumped because here I am, you know, a small town broker guy with like the Warren Buffett of Canada having lunch. And he said to me during lunch, you know, there's a lot of uh, small insurance brokers across Canada. I said, yeah, mm -hmm. yes, there are. He said, well, I think there's an opportunity to put them together and build something and take it public. I said, well, Prime, let me tell you something. I said, you can't get brokers to agree on where the coffee shop sh they should go to is. So right. I, it'd be pretty hard to get them to agree. He said, no, no, no. I'm told you're the guy that can do it. I said, well, I'm not the guy that could do it. I said, I'd be glad to help you. I'm honored that you even mentioned that to me, but, I'd be, but I'm not the guy. He said, no, you're the guy. I said, well, what do you have in mind, Prem? And he said, well, if you could put together 50 million of commission revenue, and we were 13, uh, he said, I'll put up $75 million cash, one and a half times revenue. And he said, then we'll go public and raise 50 million on the Toronto Stock Exchange. I'm like, whoa, I can't even borrow a hundred grand. And this guy's throwing around millions. So I said, well, Prem, let me tell you. I said, first of all, never give insurance brokers that kind of money because <laughs> we're not that good with cash. You know, we're good with travel and entertainment. That's our strength. Yeah. Internal rate of return, we don't do. And I said, second of all, if you're going to put up that kind of money, you need to go to the US. I think you can buy a lot of bourbon and cigars with, with that kind of money. <laughs> So Prem said, yeah, we'll go to the U.S. with that. I said, well, well, when do you want to do this? And he said, Monday. So I've already set up the company. So that was in 98. So I talked to my partners and it was like a JAG situation. We were go, go, go. Um, we said, well, we better get on this train if it's going. So in November 98, nine other firms merged with ours. I went across the country and met with some other firms I knew. And they agreed. They liked the plan. And in January, Prem put 75 million in January 99. And in February 99, we went public on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And I had we had a small head office, myself, CFO, one support person, and my dog. And uh, I bought 44 agencies that year. And the 44th, luckily enough, was Mac and Parker in Chicago, Marty Hughes. Unbeknownst to me, Marty Hughes, who was chairman of Assurex, had been in discussions with Prem Watsa to do the same thing in the U.S., but we, I never knew. So when I met Marty, he said, I want to do this deal, but I'll run the U.S. and you run Canada. And luckily, him and I spent time together and he agreed with me that we shouldn't have Canada hub and U.S. hub. We should just have one hub and work as a team. So he became the CEO and I became president and I moved to Chicago and we made that the head office for Hub. In early 2000, I moved to Chicago, became American, started to drink Bud <laughs> and, and watch football. And uh, the two of us with the CFO and chief legal officer were the head office. And thank God, because, you know, people say, well, Rick, you're the founder of Hub. And I go, not really. I mean, I was there. I was the spark. But uh, Prem was the money. And Marty was really the suave and everything. I mean, without Marty, I'd say Hub wouldn't be here without me. But it wouldn't be where it is today without Marty. Marty was a hell of a CEO and a great partner. 
And uh, the two of us were, became a team after he joined late 99. I moved there in 2000 and he left Mac and Parker. Well, I put somebody else in charge of his agency, which was about, I think his agency was around 15 or 16 million at the time in Chicago. And him and I started to work together as a team and build it from there. And I, I was the one who went out and did the deals and he ran the equity side and uh, the operational side. So when, when you guys start acquiring agencies, you acquire those 44 agencies. The first year, yeah. What, what, what's your acquisition strategy? How are you reaching out to them? What, you know, there's a lot of people probably weren't online. It's a lot easier, I think, to, to cold reach out to people now than it, than it probably was back then. Yeah. Well, we'll have the availability of information. And, and what's your, you know, what, what type of agencies are you looking for back, back then? And today, I'd like to know about today too. I was looking for credibility. So, uh, you know, cause when we were, we were the first real agency to go public and do this kind of thing. So if we didn't get any deals done, we would have lost credibility in the marketplace. So the original 44, couple things. One, I was smart enough to know that we should have a standard purchase agreement and not allow people to negotiate because the deal, a deal's a deal. When everybody joins a club, I think everybody should get the same deal. So I joined at one and a half times revenue. Everybody got in at one and a half times revenue. Everybody signed the purchase agreement, including me and my partners. And we got, and this was what Prem and I negotiated, which might sound crazy. We got 25% cash at one and a half times revenue and 75% stock. And the stock Prem wanted locked up for 10 years. You couldn't sell your stock. And I said, that won't fly. So we agreed that at the end of three years, people could sell 10% a year up to 30%. Otherwise, you're Is this private stock or public stock? Public stock. Public stock. Locked up in escrow. So the original hub was built by partners who wanted to build a long-term company. It wasn't a financial play. We got together and only took one and a half times revenue and all took the same agreement because we jointly wanted to build something to compete for the long term and build shared services to hire producers and train producers. We had a lot of things on our list. So that, that was the original group. So the first 44, the first 43 without Marty, Marty signed the same deal, by the way. But the first 43 were people who called me or people, the insurance company said, you should go meet this guy. So I had people coming in my office saying, hey, I want to know more about this hub thing and going public and everything. Because if you remember back in 99 and 2000, I'm much older than you guys, but internet stocks were going crazy. And these young kids in Napa were becoming gazillionaires. Mm. It's sort of like the uh, you know Bitcoin today. Yeah. It, they were going crazy and making all this money that it seemed sexy to be public. So people were coming to see me saying, Rick, I want in on the deal. So I did travel quite a bit the first year, but I did a lot of deals right in my office. And remember, Canada's not big. So I knew firms. So I knew Jag. So if Lewis came to see me and said, hey, we may want in on this deal. I knew the guys and I knew the reputation. So right. I picked people who I thought would be good partners I had a lot of choice, to be honest with you, back then. And people were nervous about Y2K and what was going to happen to the business when, you know, midnight. So, so there, was, there were things just sort of hanging over that the timing was right. 
So then when we moved to the U.S., we didn't have the Americans were a little more hesitant about, oh, I don't know, I want to sell to a Canadian company and have Canadian stock. So eventually we changed the terms a bit and made it so there was not so much in escrow. You didn't take as much stock. So the deal morphed over time as we gained credibility in the market. And then in 02, we went public on the New York Stock Exchange. So now we had credibility. Now we were with HRH, Brown and Brown, Gallagher, Marsh, and we were in the big leagues now. We were trading in the U.S. So that gave us new cred, and we constantly adjusted terms to try to find a balance between what a seller wanted and what we, we needed to do to maintain success with our stock price. So I told Lewis and the other guys when I met with them that in the beginning, when we went on the Canadian Stock Exchange, our stock was like $7.50. And when we ended up going private and selling the company in 07, we got $41.50 a share. So from February of 99 to June of 07, it went from seven bucks to $41.50. So that's a pretty good inter- return. I don't think my agency would have grown that much in small town Canada. So there was, there's definitely value in the collective. You can grow and create more value when you have scale and you have partners and you get the right people aligned because you can't grow your agency that far. Fast forward to today and really the last 10 years, I'd say the last, yeah, 10 years. We have always said we look for partners. We look for people who want to be on a team and want to continue to grow and fit into our way of thinking with their way of thinking. And there's really no defined perfect agency. They're all different. And it's a matter of fit. Is it a good fit for us? A good fit for them? So I I did want to jump in, Rick, because the the, the original 44, I think one of the the most amazing things besides the, the exponential growth is how did you manage so many different personalities? Because, you know, as, as producers, agency owners, like that's a, that's a, that's, that's a tremendous feat by itself, right? Just what, yeah. what was the key thing to get four to four people aligned and moving forward? A lot of, a lot of type A personalities in that, I'm sure. Yeah. So that, I mean, I, I mean, we have trouble imagine, right? Like so many, all of us are so different. I mean, you have to have an ego to be in sales, right? That's just, it is what it is. But, but what do you attribute? Like, what was that? What was the, is there a one defining, I don't know, how'd you do it basically? Like, is there like a, cause that, that to me is the most impressive part. Well, that's a great question. The, the, the name hub came from the original uh, business plan. So when we hired, when Brian and I hired a branding agency, they came up with the name Hub, which we hated. We said, that's a stupid name. Why do we pay 35 grand for that name? And they said, well, because when we read your business plan, everything's a hub and spoke strategy. Mm. And that was the approach I took when Prem put me in a room with a bunch of lawyers and said, write the prospectus. I said, what's a prospectus, basically? And then they said, well, you've got to write a business plan to go public. So I don't like large head offices. I always felt that people should be able to make decisions locally. So I said, well, we're going to build a plan that says when people join us, they're going to be a local regional hub and they will run that region and they will manage all the acquisitions in that region. So when the original 10 partners got, came together, each one was their own hub. We didn't even change their name. 
if you were JAG Insurance, at the bottom of your letterhead, it said a Hub International. Well, it said Hub Group Company. We weren't even Hub International. And your logo stayed the same and you operate the same. That original 10 helped me do the 44 acquisitions. So the partner, the Bartons, Bartonop Insurance in British Columbia, they went and bought six agencies in the first year and they managed all six of those themselves. I just did the deals for them. And then the guys in Montreal bought four agencies in Montreal. They managed those. The guy, the guys in Ottawa bought one or two, the guys in Southern Ontario. So there were 10 hubs. And eventually, because some of them were bigger, they all wanted to get the same deal. So at one time we had 29 hubs across Canada, all 29 of them kept their name and all 29 had a president and all 29 sat on our executive. So when I had executive meetings, which were quarterly, all 29 presidents were there at the meeting. So in the beginning, it was almost like a YPO or an Assurex type thing. Mm -hmm. Everybody getting to know each other and jointly deciding like this, the, the story was always, look, it's all transparent. We're all partners here. We all sold our agencies for one and a half times. We all got 75% of our equity in stock. If we don't all get along and build this together, then our stock's going to go to crap. So you had a lot of skin in the game with all 29 original hubs. So eventually what happened was in the meetings we had quarterly, guys got to know each other and they'd say, hey, you've got a really good program center that does these type of programs. Can you help me with my programs? Because I want to go and write auto dealers too. And what started to happen was people started through trust and getting to know each other to share resources. So corporate didn't even get involved. I said, look, corporate's going to run the financial reporting and the public company and the legal. What goes on in the operating centers, you guys decide in the field. So if you want to share an accounting department or HR or whatever you guys want to share, you work it out locally. And the deal was you got one and a half times revenue 75% stock, and you had to have a 20% margin. If you had a 20% margin, you got in the club. Then everything above 20%, you kept 50% of to distribute in your own shop. That was your bonus plan. So now you had operators saying, okay, I can run at 24%. I'm going to get 2% of revenue for myself and my team as bonuses. And every time the team found better improvement in margin or growth, they got, they made more money personally too. So not only did they have the stock was growing because of the margin as they grew, but they were making more money personally as they grew the operation. So it created the shared interest locally and collectively that worked very well. And that the, the really, it just boiled down to you make the call. It wasn't that hard to manage them. Right. Now, if eventually we had to start to build rules around things because, you know, we're a publicly traded company and you have to have compliance and you had to have certain things. I would say that, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley was one of the biggest hits we took where we had to become Sarbanes compliant, et cetera. But along the way, all these presidents were involved in the quarterly meetings and collectively they started to form really the culture and the vision and the values of the company. And eventually we had presidents that said, look, 
I don't want to be a president anymore. I want to merge my hub in with that hub and I'm going to take over sales or I'm going to take over programs or, or I'm going to golf more and take less money. So it just evolved, but it wasn't driven. I always tell people hub was driven from the bottom up, not from the top down. And that's where I think hub is still different today. We've had to become a lot more restrictive when it comes to certain things because of, you know, the whole world's become more compliant. Right. But anything we can do that is allows the regions to make local calls. We say, make the call. Lewis, make the call. You guys decide how you want to pay your CSRs, blah, 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 blah. The only thing you can't do is you can't join the firm and have a 26% margin. And then next year you increase everybody's pay and you go to 22%. <laughs> I mean, and they don't because they're partners, A and B, they have earnouts. So they go, well, right. I only make my earnout if I improve profits. So, so we used to have this thing we called flow through. And I, and I, you know, these are things that come to you over time and say, look, here's how you got to think. If you're running a 24% EBITDA, then when you write new business, you want to make sure 24% or more flows to the bottom line. Because if you're writing new business and you're paying out 100% on it, your margin is going to go down from 24. Right. So you look at flow through. So we're always looking at flow through. It's just a simple thing. Because people say, look, we need to hire more people. No problem. You can hire more people. Just watch your flow through. If you're going to add another million dollars in premium and your flow through is 125% of, of revenue, well, your margin is going to drop. And every the offices still get bonuses based on performance. It's their call, but typically it won't fly very well if they're going backwards. So when you're looking at a firm like Jag, okay. So uh, I got to know Lewis and, and Doug and Fernie right around the time. I'm not going to say you guys rebranded Lewis, but you guys sort of uh, yeah. spruced things up a little bit and started focusing more on the brand of Jag. And you guys have one of the strongest, if not the strongest brands out there. When you guys are looking at a firm, Rick, like Jag, how much does that solid brand play into, A, the fact that you are interested and attracted to them, and B, does that have any effect on the bottom line in terms of the purchase parameters? Yeah, well, yes, of course, because, you know, the brand is really the people. And uh, if it doesn't have a good brand, it probably doesn't have good people. So I, I, I think where you're going is the people. It's really the people. And, you know, if I, if I get a call from someone and they say, you know, we've had life's good. We're looking at our options, blah, blah, blah. How big's your firm? Well, we're 5 million, blah, blah, blah. Okay, how old is it? And when you start to gain some information, I get more and more excited when I hear that people built something themselves, that they've been driving it. Because yeah. they're those people can't stop. Like they don't sell and just go home. Those are people like, man, we got we we rocked it to this point. And we don't even know if we want to sell, but we want to rock to the next point, and we're not quite sure how we rocket to that. If you talk to somebody that says, you know, we got to this 3 million and we've been sitting here, we've been sitting at this number for the last five years, but we got reasons why. And they start telling you all the reasons why. Then you go, hmm, this is a make work job, this one. Yeah. So, you know, JAG, because of the people and the brand, uh, was go, go, go. 
those are the highest. We pay the highest price for those. Mm-hmm. Lewis, we got to go in a second. You want to end this thing by talking just a little bit about what the future looks like for Jag Insurance right now? The future's bright, man. We're we're still in the transition phase. We're again, it's Jag, it's Hub International. You know, we're forming our own hub. You know, Hub South Florida. Um, we're excited. I, I can tell you now. You know, I'm 41 years old. I'm more excited today than I than, and I can speak for my partners as well, and really everybody in our office. We're more excited today than we've ever been in our careers. Kind of to, um, it's it's an interesting part. I'm I'm thankful. I've been doing this for 16 years. Um, to anybody, you know, anybody in the business, it's it's funny how we all do things so different. Um, we've all, I mean, this is the best industry in the world, right? The fact that more people don't know about it or talk about it is uh, this service. Shout out to you and Bradley. You guys are are really big advocates. I mean, who like a reason, honestly, the reason why I started my own company, because I always talk about this, nobody's a mentor to me. Like nobody helped me, right? So Doug Frey and I started this because we didn't have this platform. I would have made less mistakes. I would have been a different spot. I mean, granted, I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm happy where I'm at, but the whole point is thanks for you guys doing this and having these conversations. And to anybody listening, everybody out there in this industry, we're all different. I mean, everybody I meet every day, I'm a little more exposed now joining Hub. I meet producers who everyone's different. Everyone has a different skill set. Everyone is such an, a unique kind of perspective. And um, um, we're excited today. We're, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity. Thankful that I met Rick um, about a year ago. Um, and this is just a, it's a good time to be in the insurance industry, no matter what happens, sky's the limit for any, anybody listening. Hey, before I shut this thing down and I, I guess, uh, I guess maybe we need to ask Rick this question, but would it be okay for anybody that's listening to this podcast right now that, you know, kind of at that spot where they feel like they might want to talk to somebody about a partnership with, with hub international. Yeah, for for them to contact Lewis regarding that, and then he can kind of point them in the right direction of who they need to speak to. Would that be okay with you, Lewis? Absolutely, hundred percent. Tell them, tell them, tell them how to get in touch with you. Well, I mean, so our, our email address. It's funny, we're we're still Jag Insurance Group, so it's uh, and I'll put it on there. But you can reach me on my cell phone. I mean, I'm always on my cell. It's three zero five six one three two five zero five. And even our JAG email, it's it's my first initial L G A Z I T U A at JAG J A G I N S group.com. But you can just find us on social and reach out. But I mean, just as just as being just, I mean, I, I'm in it. Um, any questions, concerns, love to reach out. I mean, I love insurance. I love doing this. I love talking about insurance. So um, anybody has a questions, concerns, yeah, feel free to reach out. Rick Gulliver, I love you. I appreciate all you've done in your life for the insurance industry. You've lived a uh, a full life, to say the least. I know I just got through talking to the soon-to-be-retiring president of the Big Eye in September. I told him he needed to be careful. He'd be more busy in retirement than he was out, out of retirement. But uh, I know you've got a lot going on, but I appreciate you joining us today. Hey, you guys, you and Bradley, I take my hat off to you that you guys are doing this promoting this kind of thing. This is how I got in the game, listening to George Nordhaus tapes back in the day, interviewing people like me. Good stuff, man. And the fact you guys are going after different approaches to gain new business, I respect it. You're my kind of guys. Well, we're going to keep grinding until somebody tells us to stop. I just uh, told somebody last week, they called me and I said, I'm just going to keep chopping wood and carrying water to somebody tells me to quit, I guess. But, uh, I uh I don't know what the future holds but uh 
you both have certainly done a good job today of talking about some things that have been on my mind lately relative to how, how do you level up and get to that next level? And can you do it on your own or is it, is it, is it going to be a lot easier uh, walk to do it with a partner like hub who has the expertise and uh, we did we, something we didn't even get into today was just the, the different divisions of hub that mm-hmm. can assist, uh, yeah. you know, on, on large accounts, especially uh, the teams of people that specialize in that particular account. We didn't even get a chance to get into that today. Um, yeah, I, will, I will say that we, from where we talked in the beginning of starting hub, it was smoke and mirrors, you know, it was right. like one guy said, wizard of Oz, nothing behind the curtain. <laughs> well, today, uh, it's um, unbelievable the resources Hub has for producers to help them write business. Right. And, uh, I, I that's one of the things that I'm most proud of because I'm a producer, and the that's fact that we can help producers get more business that's in the winter circle for me right there. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll say one thing. I'm, I'm I'm the least smartest person in the room. That's for sure. So that's I'm, I'm winning, and that that's the, I, I'll take it all day. Well, I appreciate both of you being on today. As I end every episode, rewards come from action, not discussion. Get your ass out from behind that desk today. Go out into the big, bad world. Figure out what your why is. Make money for your family, for your wife, for your husband, for your kids' college fund, for your parents and your in-laws that are struggling out there today. Go make money for them. Figure out what your why is and go help them live the life that you deserve to live. Write good business for the agencies that you represent and write good business for the companies that you represent. Bradley Flowers, I love you. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Hey, top five. I love you. I love you. I love you, too. All right. We'll see you guys. Hey, have a great week. And uh, for everybody out there listening to the show today, we love each and every one of you. Thank you so much for being a part of our family. And we'll see you back here real soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Insurance Guys podcast. If you need to know more about me or you need to get in touch with Scott, you can always reach me at theinsuranceguyonline.com or email me at scott at iprotectinsurance.com. And if you need to get in touch with Mr. Bradley Flowers, go to portalinsurance.com or email him at bradley at portalinsurance.com. Guys, we love you. We thank you so much for listening to our show and being a part of our family. And we look forward to seeing you again next week on the next episode of the Insurance Guys podcast. Take care.